Imagine you're a freshman in college and the school summons the student body to listen to a lecture on the aims of education by some high-flying academic ego with plumage and a fancy title to match. You listen and are duly impressed. Afterwards, you meet in a small group with a junior faculty member to discuss it. You're encouraged to weigh and consider the ideas and venture some observations. Everyone does. And someone asks the professor for his thoughts. With a minimum of movement, he reveals the eagle is really a turkey and then proceeds to pieard, spatchcock, and grill it in short order, producing a delicious and nutritious intellectual feast. I'd never seen anything like it. Still haven't. Joining us today is Stephen Pincus. He's the Donnelly Professor of History at the University of Chicago. He received his BA from Dartmouth and his AM and PhD from Harvard. He's the author of four books, four edited volumes, and 12 refereed articles. My favorites include 1688, The First Modern Revolution, and Heart of the Declaration. He's the winner of almost three dozen awards and fellowships and rumored to be the professor that assigns more reading than anybody else. Today, he'll be presenting uh, on Do Wars Make States and States Make War? Please join me in welcoming Steve Pincus to Notre Dame. Okay. Thanks so much. It's great, great to be here. Um, so what what I'm going to be talking about today is is uh, 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 the global origins uh, uh, of the Seven Years War. Um, and uh, actually, uh, let me just sort of set the stage. So um, uh, just days before uh, Gaston Pierre de Lévy, the Duc de Mirepoix, left London in July 1755 without taking leave of George II, um, a contributor to, to one of the uh, uh, opposition newspapers of the day, the London Evening Post, opined that we are apparently on the eve of a war of a new kind in which our commerce is at stake. The editors of the Pennsylvania Gazette um, highlighted the importance of political economy by reprinting an essay from the Utrecht Gazette, which was widely read uh, across the British Empire, proclaiming that in order to give a just idea of this affair, one must look to the origins of differences both on the East and West Indies. So uh, contemporaries saw this as a, uh, as a war about political economy on a global scale. And that's uh, the, the basis for sort of asking the question, which is motivating the talk, which is why did the Seven Years, break, seven years War break out in July 1755? The uh, Seven Years War uh, uh, went from uh, 1755 uh, to 1763. So um, in asking this question, I wanted to sort of raise some questions about what I think is one of the most exciting books uh, uh, I've read uh, recently uh, 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 by Barry Boosin and George Lawson, The Global Transformation. Um, what uh, these two scholars have argued um, is that uh, during the 19th century, a global transformation remade the basic structure of international order. The transformation was profound, involving a complex configuration of industrialization, rational state building, and ideologies of prog progress. And I should say that one put under a microscope, what they mean by industrialization is really a turn towards much more market-driven uh, economies. Um, and then they say the tripartite configuration that laid behind the global transformation, industrialization, rational state building, and ideologies of progress, not only generated a core periphery global order, but also destabilized great power relations by exposing the balance of power to the pressures of rapid technological and social change, with the consequence of making balancing dynamics much more volatile. So in their view, this great transformation, which took place in the 19th century, fundamentally uh, fundamentally transformed uh, international relations. 
Um, and for me, I sort of thought the Seven Years' War uh, was a good test of their theory because Boozen and Lawson locate the changes which sort of generate the great transformation in Northwest, uh, in, uh, Northwest Europe. And that's what I'm going to test this against, and I'll come back to that later on. So just to sort of briefly summarize what the standard explanations for the causes of the Seven Years' War, the first is the kind of uh, Ohio Valley thesis uh, that American settlers on the frontiers into conflict with the French in the Ohio Valley. Um, and it assumes a weak imperial state, a weak Im a British imperial state, uninterested and unable to control its settlers who sort of start the conflict on the frontier. The second standard interpretation is a European grand strategy interpretation with an exclusive focus on the European balance of power in which Germany and Central Europe was key, that the need uh, and the, the war began because of Britain's need to balance the growing power of France on the continent. Um, in this view, the rest of the world was a peripheral concern at best. Um, the war happened, the war was triggered ultimately because of a diplomatic revolution in 1756 in which Prussia uh, destabilized uh, the European balance of power by shifting from a French alliance to a British alliance. And then Austria responded by shifting to a French alliance away from a British alliance, causing, uh, ultimately triggering the war. My argument, by contrast, is that the war was provoked when Britain pursued an infrastructural development strategy on a global imperial scale, and I'm going to place a microscope on Nova Scotia, that political economic competition rather than grand strategy caused the war, and that the global competition between two Northwestern European powers led to war, involving, which involved rational state building based on infrastructure, an emphasis on global markets, and competing ideologies of progress all in the middle of the 18th century. So the Seven Years' War was a globally modern war in the Boozen and Lawson sense, but a full century before their theory allows. And I wanna talk about what the implications of that might be. So let me set, sort of set the stage. There was a mid-Hanoverian economic crisis. Matthew Decker, an important political economist in the 18th century, took it for granted that the foreign trade of Britain was declining. However, parties may differ about other things, wrote another political economist, Malachi Postlethwaite. They seem all to agree that the nation, that is to say the British nation, is at present reduced to a very melancholy state. Now, these impressions were, have been confirmed by my work on economic data, right? So the British sugar island were losing market share to their French rivals at a remarkable pace. Africa, the British African trade was losing markets to the French. There was shortage, a shortage of specie, coin in colonial America, which led to a decline in imported British manufactured goods in colonial North America. Um, they were, uh, the British were losing out to the French in the Mediterranean and Levant trade. In fact, the French had sort of take, completely taken over the Levant trade. East India Company profit, French East India Company profits were higher than English English East India co Company profits in the 1750s for the only time in French history and British history as well. And textiles, uh, I know from my work uh, in the archives in, in the north, uh, the north uh, of England, uh, were in decline in both the West Country and in Lancashire. So the, the hotbeds of the Industrial Revolution were in uh, economic decline on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. So the overall comparative picture was clear. Ralph Davis long ago described what this was, was a depression uh, in English foreign trade during the period. Between the 1720s and 1750s, French exports grew at 3.5% annually versus only 1.5% annually for Britain. French interest rates in the 1750s had for the first time ever uh, become as low as British interest rates. Um, and there was a relative decline 
decline uh, over, uh, uh, the British trade was in relative decline over a long period, but it had gone into absolute decline in the 1750s. So what was to be done about it? There were three responses uh, in Britain. One was what I'll call an old guard response, a second was a Bedfordite response, and a third was a patriot response. <clears throat> the old guard response uh, was developed by three prominent political economists, two of which you probably never heard of, Matthew Decker and Josiah Tucker, and the third you probably heard too much about, David Hume. Um, and here's uh, David Hume looking extremely handsome. Uh, uh, so what did these guys believe? They believed that British trade was in relative decline vis-a-vis -vis France, but because of Britain's natural advantages as a first mover, France could never actually catch up. Therefore, uh, the relative decline was no real threat. Um, what Britain should do in an to respond to this relative decline is accelerate their natural advantages by eliminating restrictions on trade, like monopolies and the Navigation Acts, um, uh, that Britain should avoid war at all costs because it was a trading nation, and it especially should avoid uh, uh, one's fought for what David Hume called jealousy of trade. Um, and what they should instead focus on was maintaining the balance of power in Europe by subsidizing allies. And on the whole, they were in favor of technocratic governance. By this, I mean, they thought it was important to avoid popular discussion of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, international relations, um, and they should avoid above of all partisan politics, that the government uh, that should make its own decisions in-house and pay little attention to public opinion. They also had minimalist imperial aspirations. They were opposed to more colonial conquests. Josiah Tucker said, the less we aim at conquest, the more desirous would every people be to traffic with us. And they wanted to encourage colonial production through bounties and freer trade. Um, uh, that is to say, make uh, producing things like sugar, tobacco, uh, rice. And they were generally critical of slavery. So that's one group. Uh, and at this, as I'll suggest, these people, while they're, uh, uh, they're very prominent, they're well known to, uh, uh, to historians of political economy, um, they had almost no influence on policy at the end of the day. The second position was a Bedfordite position, clearly enunciated by John Russell, the fourth Duke of Bedford, um, and William Beckford, as well as a journal uh, edited by a man called James Ralph called The Protester. Um, there's... Uh, the Duke of Bedford. Um, so what did the Bedfordites believe? They believed that the French were achieving hegemony through overseas empires. So it was a real threat, and it was a threat caused by Brit French imperial aspirations. Uh, the Britain, uh, Britain was wasting resources on achieving balance of power in Europe. All this was doing was, uh, was uh, uh, raising tax rates in Britain, uh, not achieving balance of power, and making their products uncompetitive uh, uh, on uh, global markets. Britain, in their view, should divert all its resources uh, away from Europe towards developing an Atlantic empire. They wanted to turn their back on, on Europe, a sort of Brexit uh, of all the lettres. Um, they wanted, uh, they thought uh, the empire that they wanted needed to be hierarchical and authoritarian. Indeed, they proposed taxing the colonies directly and indeed proposed uh, a stamp tax. Um, they thought the key to British imperial prosperity was colonial production, uh, sugar, rice, and tobacco. Um, and they thought a war was absolutely necessary immediately to reverse French uh, geopolitical gains. 
Um, they said over and over again that the French were achieving universal monarchy through empire. The French have long been aspiring to universal monarchy, said the Duke of Bedford. The basis of French power, uh, uh, argued one essayist in the London Evening Post, was their flourishing empire. The time when the French, with great foresight and policy, obtained their larger possessions in America is the epic from which may be traced by the most regular advances their degree of growth. Um, so they wanted to ignore Europe and conquer new colonies. Um, in Bedford's view, the reduction of Canada, Louisiana, and the French Empire in North America would inevitably ruin the French sugar islands, devastate the trade of old France, and permanently secure to us our present possessions on the continent of North America. So that's the Bedfordite position. The third position was the Patriot position. Um, their great theorist was Malachi Postlethwaite, uh, who's unfortunately little known today. Um, uh, and uh, their great politician uh, behind them was a man by the name of William Pitt, who of course eventually became prime minister. Uh, uh, here's Postlethwaite's great work, uh, The Universal Dictionary, uh, and here's William Pitt. Um, so what did the Patriots believe? They believed the French gains had been global, but the focus in their view was on their commercial gains rather than their geopolitical gains. Britain therefore needed a global imperial development strategy as opposed to focusing on colonial extraction uh, as the Bedfordites wanted or simply freeing up trade as the, as the old guard wanted. They thought the balance of power in Europe needed to be maintained, but European balance of power depended on global economic balance. So the only way to achieve balance of power in Europe was, yes, not to turn one's back on Europe, but to look to think globally. Um, so British imperial prosperity depended not on colonial production of raw materials, but on colonial and global consumption of British manufactured goods. Um, and they wanted a confederal rather than a hierarchical empire. Uh, and I'm not going to say anything more about this, although I know Joe has written quite a lot about, about confederations. Um, war, um, they thought, was only necessary in exceptional circumstances. Um, they warned of the French commercial advance, uh, as Postlethwaite uh, said, um, and they had a global rather than a merely Atlantic focus. It was incumbent upon the policymaker, therefore, to delve into commerce in particular. Anglo-French co uh, commercial competition existed in all parts of the globe. Um, and this was not uh, a, a rhetorical throwaway line. Um, uh, Postlethwaite explained that experience has hitherto shown that those powers who most wisely cherish the their plantation trade and navigation in America are likely to have the greatest share of mercantile shipping, the best nursery of seamen, and in a word, to be the best capable of maintaining the dominion and sovereignty of the seas. Was the whole of the East India commerce in the hands of any one European state? Postlethwaite said um, uh, uh, that however ruinous some imagine this trade with India uh, might be, it seems more likely to enable such state to gain the universal empire and mastery over all Europe and thereby give law to the whole world. Now, um, uh, um, and of course, they valued, uh, the Patriots valued consumption rather than production, as our colonies increase our navigation by taking off our manufacturers and superfluidities at home, Postlethwaite argued, they are justly looked on to be the greatest support of the power and affluence of the nation. Um, war uh, was necessary only in extraordinary circumstances, but these were extraordinary times because the French commercial uh, uh, the French were on the brink of commercial hegemony, not through simply uh, being industrious, but because of their superior craft and Machiavellian policy, rather than superior industry, which allowed them to seize the trade of the world.
Now, I focused on Postlethwaite, who you've never heard of, because he was the single best-selling political economist, much bigger than David Hume, uh, uh, and much bigger, ultimately, than Adam Smith in the 18th century. This was somebody who was trans, whose works were translated into 18 languages and was widely read everywhere. His works were serialized in newspapers and magazines all across the British Empire. This was a deeply influential work, indeed, and somebody very tight, hope tightly tied in uh, to patriot politics. So there were three ideological positions which coalesced uh, in response to this decline, the old guard position, um, uh, the, the Bedfordite position, which uh, said that economic decline was caused by engagements with Europe. He, they argued for ignoring Europe and for colonial conquest. And the patriots who thought uh, that a global economic strategy was necessary with state support. And the focus, therefore, was on colonial consumption, not on production. So that's the context. Why? then how they responded to this decline. Why did war break out in 1755? Given these ideological disputes and given that the ministry was supposedly dominated by old guard views, that is to say, uh, the Humean views of free trade, why did Britain and France start a new global war in 1755? Um, uh, well, I think it's useful to look at what actually happened at the beginning of the war. In July 1755, both British and French representatives were withdrawn from each other's capitals. All in Britain, France, and America saw this as the beginning of a new war. And I'll just give you one example from the diary uh, of the French politician, the Marquis d'Argenson, who on the 21st of July 1755 noted that all English persons have orders to leave France within two weeks, which is equivalent to a declaration of war. Why did the uh, Anglo-Dutch-French diplomatic relations break down in July 1755? Um, well, the explanation cannot be because of the diplomatic revolution, right? Uh, because the diplomatic revolution took place in 1756. And you don't have to be a mathematician to re realize that it's unlikely that an important political event of 1756 is going to uh, uh, precipitate a war beginning in 1755. Um, so the European grand strategy explanation seems to be wanting. Um, uh, the, it, the, the Ohio Valley explanation also seems to be problematic because that focuses on the defeat of General Braddock's, uh, Braddock. Um, but un unfortunately for this explanation, it wasn't known in Europe till after the withdrawal of the ambassadors uh, uh, from France and Britain. So again, um, it couldn't have been Braddock's defeat. I mean, I don't think Braddock's defeat helped it, helped anything, but it couldn't have been the precipitating event because it happened after uh, uh, after uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, what was tantamount to a declaration of war had already happened. The answer had to do with the activities of this guy, Admiral Ned Boscuin. So, um, in fact, the British fleet attacked the French off the coast of Newfoundland, um, seized two French naval ships, um, and they, uh, in an attempt to reinforce Nova Scotia, while the French were trying to pry open at the Atlantic Seaway to the Canada. So the war began off of Nova Scotia. Um, it was it began as a naval war, but why was Nova Scotia, which you know, here it is, uh, why why had it become so important? Well. Part of the reason is because after the end of the War of the Austrian Succession, um, the British government uh, behind Henry Pelham, the then prime minister, invested dramatically uh, in developing uh, their colony of Nova Scotia. Oh, 
they decided to settle the colony and to invest heavily in it. In 1753, almost 95,000 pounds per year were spent on developing Nova Scotia, which was over 4% of the entire British budget was spent on, on uh, developing Nova Scotia alone, which, and it was about twice as much as the, as the British government spent on all European subsidies, right? I mean, the, the, uh, the European explanation for the war says the whole focus is on the balance of power of Europe, but in fact, all of the money spent on balancing the power of Europe was less than half of what was spent on average in a single year on Nova Scotia. Surely Nova Scotia was, ex was, was extremely uh, important for this government. Um, so the Pelham and Newcastle, uh, Henry Pelham, who was prime minister, the Duke of Newcastle, Duke of Newcastle, his half brother, who was Secretary of State, did care deeply about the colonies. Indeed, they cared twice as deeply about the colonies, at least about Nova Scotia, as they did about Europe. They certainly didn't neglect what was going on in the colonies. There was massive expenditure. Um, it appears neglectful only if one has a prior expectation about where the expenditure should take place. In other words, American historians have focused on why did they spend more money on the American colonies? Well, of course, Nova Scotia was an American colony. It just didn't become part of the future United States. So I think that there's a sort of nationalist bias, which has sort of missed what, what the colonial development strategy was for. By the late 1740s, the British government had abandoned old guard political reasoning in favor of a patriot development strategy. What had happened in the face of economic decline was that moderate politicians were pushed by events to what in the 18th century terms would be called the political left. They've been moved in the direction of the patriots precisely because uh, uh, the patriots had uh, a better, uh, at least a strategy to deal with economic decline. What then did the government spend money on in Nova Scotia? They spent huge amounts of money on infrastructure. They subsidized immigration, up to 10 years of no taxes for immigrants and substantial grants of land and startup costs for three years for anybody who would immigrate to Nova Scotia. They recruited immigrants from Germany, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. Six to 8,000 came in four years. And indeed, uh, the state papers, uh, the colonial office papers are filled with the recruiting documents, hundreds and hundreds of pages. Uh, they built towns, uh, uh, each with a school and a church throughout Nova Scotia. They spent money on Indian presence. They took a census of all the French inhabitants, and they built roads to new towns, and they built courthouses. And of course, they made Halifax from scratch. That's what Halifax looked like in 1754. Um, and they built the, uh, St. Paul's Church in Halifax, which, as you see it today, is a great example of mid-18th century Hanoverian architecture. Um, the French response to this infrastructural development was extreme. The French ministry at the same time was divided internally uh, uh, between a war party whose ideas very much mirrored the Bedfordites and a peace party whose ideas increasingly mirrored the British old guard. The negotiations were ongoing between uh, Britain and France by commissaries in Paris between 1748 and 1755 to try to negotiate away uh, any differences. But the development, the infrastructural development of Nova Scotia provoked alarm in France, giving the upper hand to the war party. Um, and here's just some memoranda uh, in the French 
uh, archives. Uh, so uh, the British settlement of Nova Scotia shows that England is only waiting for a favorable a conjunction and the slightest pretext to make war on us in America to seize all our possessions and entirely destroy our commerce. A more important uh, memorandum by, by Berrin uh, de la Galissonniere said, it is universally known by those who know about the locality and one cannot too often repeat that if the French do not seize Acadia, Nova Scotia, Acadia will lead to the conquest of Louisbourg. Um, uh, there are few today who doubt the colonies are necessary to become a great state, um, uh, but because of French British naval, because of British naval superiority, the only hope for France was to attack the British in their possessions. The best way to do this was to fortify in America. So in La Galissonniere's view, um, the problem was for France was that while Britain was pursuing a colonial development strategy, they were certainly soon going to overpace and take over uh, all of France. And France's only response was, uh, was to attack first, was to strike. Um, uh, so who was Bassin La Galissonniere? Um, he was a career naval man, the commander general of New France from 1747 to 1749. Uh, uh, and and most importantly, the client of the war party minister, the Comte de Maurepas. So the consequence of this was that the Marquis Duquesne, um, uh, uh, a client of La Galissonniere, became governor of New France. He immediately ordered the French missionary, the Abbe Le Loutre, to harass the British new settlement uh, in, in Nova Scotia, starting what became Le Loutre's War in 1749. And he ordered the French military to take all the English they find on the waters of Ohio prisoners, and if traitors to seize on their goods, for they would allow them no trade with the Indians. So the very attack on the Ohio, uh, the focus of so much early Americanist literature was precipitated by British development of Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, not the Ohio Valley, was the key. And there's Duquesne. Um, so what kind of policy was the settling of Nova Scotia? Was it a war policy, as La Galissonniere claimed? No. In fact, Bedford, who was the leader of the war party, took absolutely no interest in settling Nova Scotia, which infuriated the governor of Nova Scotia, Cornwallis, and the Board of Trade. Um, uh, um, uh, there were no precious resources in Nova Scotia other than timber. Um, so there was no people who focused on colonial production had no reason to be interested in Nova Scotia. Um, coal, which of course became important in later 18th and 19th century Nova Scotia was not then a focus. Um, uh, uh, what about, uh, was it an old guard policy? Well, there was no mass, they didn't want a massive expenditure on colonies. Um, and uh, the development of, of Nova Scotia, the subsidizing immigration was anything but a free trade policy. In fact, it was a patriot policy modeled on Georgia, which was a patriot experiment. Um, the value of Nova Scotia was as a port to import British manufactured goods into North America in a big way and a naval base to protect commerce. Um, so Nova Scotia was part of a global pattern, the conflict in Nova Scotia, the neutral islands in the West Indies, the French seized and settled St. Lucia uh, uh, and St. Vincent and sent settlers to Tobago to prevent uh, the British from doing what they uh, to, from doing the same thing in those islands of what they were doing in Nova Scotia. Um, and the goal there was to seize the timber supplies that were key to sugar production. They also uh, uh, did uh, uh, the also while the British were investing in developing along the Coromandel coast in Madras, most importantly, uh, uh, the French uh, sent Duplay to attack them there. 
Um, so in, in the view of most people of public, of public opinion, they saw this as a global conflict. Uh, uh, the order uh, to give a just, in order to give a just idea of this affair, uh, one must look into the origins of differences both in the East and West Indies. Um, 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 and what we've seen then was a Pelamite shift to a Patriot uh, position, um, as I said before. And in fact, in, in October 7, 1754, uh, John Page, the government uh, advisor on, on financial affairs, wrote to the Duke of Newcastle, who by then had become prime minister, saying, France need, now seems to be pushing as strongly for universal commerce as Louis XIV was for what we call universal power. I own myself more afraid at this hour of French credit and French commerce than of French fleets and French armies. Um, so why did the war broke out? break out? Well, the war broke out as a result of global political economic conflict between the British and the French. It wasn't the result of a weak state unable to control settlers on the periphery, but on state commitment to a patriot political economy of infrastructural development. The conflict provoked by the British pursuing an imperial development strategy, while the French focused on global geopolitical military strategy. The development in Nova Scotia, but also India and the West Indies was a provocation, therefore, to the French. So what does this say then about the global transformation thesis? Clearly, the global mattered in the 18th century, a full century before Buzin and Lawson would have predicted. This was not a local or a regional conflict. Global markets were at stake, industrialization in process, but not necessary, it was the global markets which were important. The states were pursuing rational infrastructure buildup, again, something which Buzin and Lawson say shouldn't happen until the middle of the 19th century. Uh, but both French and British politicians were committed to an ideology, both British and French politicians were committed to an ideology of progress, increased prosperity based on empire, although the French focus was more on colonial production, while the British was more on colonial consumption. What are the implications for periodization in international relations? Well, just to remind you, Busan and Lawson said, once the magnitude of the changes initiated in the 19th century is rec recognized, it becomes clear that we are not living in a world where the principal dynamics are defined by the outcomes of 1500, 1648, 1919, 1945, or 1989. We are living now and are likely to be living for some time yet in a world defined predominantly by the downstream consequences of the 19th century global transformation. Clearly, the British case, one of their key cases, does not fit the model. It suggests, if anything, the downstream consequences were already established. Perhaps then uh, circa 1500 is the key date. So Marx said that the discovery of America, the rounding of the Cape, opened up fresh, fresh grounds for the rising bourgeoisie, the East Indian and Chinese markets, the colonization of America, trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange and in commodities generally gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never known before, and thereby to the revolutionary element in the tottering feudal society of rapid development, modern industry has established the world market for which the discovery of America paved the way. Now, what's remarkable is that Adam Smith said almost exactly the same thing. The discovery of America and that of the passage to the East Indies by the Cape of Good Hope are the two greatest and most important events in the history of mankind. Their consequences have already been very great, but in the short period between the two, between two and three centuries, which has elapsed between these, since these discoveries were made, it is impossible that the whole extent of their consequences can have been seen. So for them, 
uh, uh, for both Smith and Marx about most people generally don't see them agreeing about much, but on this point, they absolutely agree, uh, right? Um, uh, and I think it's plausible. Circa 1500 shifted the world from regional to global economic markets. In Europe in particular, this transformed societies, states, and then economies. It was a path-dependent transformation that followed. First states, classic period of state formation that Charles Tilley talked about, uh, triggered both by desires of polities to control new resources and by the increased state capacity uh, 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 made possible by the new wealth. This generated a great period of instability, uh, circa 1750 to 1815, generally called the age of revolutions or imperial crisis. And this was a global uh, period of instability. One could focus as, as much on India, China, uh, the Americas, Africa, or Europe during this period. And then then came the great divergence on economic grounds later. So first state transformation, then great divergence. So why did the British Empire diverge? Smith and Marx offered general explanations that it should apply to all Europe, yet the British Empire was different. It pursued at times uh, developmental rather than extractive imperial policies. It was shaped by horizontal rather than vertical collect, uh, connections. And the policies were shaped by public partisan politics as opposed to factional struggles which took place behind closed doors in the French, Portuguese, and Spanish empires. My hypothesis is that England and Britain, England Britain precociously uh, was precociously dependent on foreign trade because it had much less arable land, and the landed elites were unable to form a closed oligarchy. The British state thus uniquely was dependent on merchants for revenue, and most merchants have incentives uh, to maximize information available about markets uh, and to pressure the state to guarantee access to markets. Uh, whereas revenue in China and France never depended on overseas trade to the same extent. So I think this is what explains the divergent outcomes. Anyway, that's all I have to say. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. Uh, so there it is. Thank you very much. Um, that was excellent. Let me do the standard PSAs. Uh, the first thing is on the finger rules. One finger is the regular hand raising function. Um, if you have a regular question, we'll put you in the queue. And if you have uh, something that's on the point of what someone's saying, um, please use in the reaction bar, there's a thumbs up. It lasts for 15 seconds and hopefully I'll see it. But if I don't see it, raise it again and I'll try and get you in. Um, the second point is when you ask a question, please turn your camera on uh, so that we can, you know, have an actual conversation. Um, with that, we will open the floor up for questions. All right, Dan Lindley. Hi there, thank you for a, uh, a fascinating talk. And um, you certainly have a career as an auctioneer if everything else goes, uh, goes haywire. Um, I'm wondering what the implications are for today's world. What, what you see is the patterns of, of trade, uh, global competition, US, China, um, that sort of thing. Um, do you have any application from from then to today? I mean, if you're preceding the analysis by Boozen and, and company, um, maybe things extend into the future as well as into the past. So if you could speak to that, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, there, there are several things. I mean, one is, one is that I think, um, I, I, you know, uh, just, I mean, here I sort of agree with Boosin and Lawson that I, one shouldn't separate security concerns from, you know, uh, IPE concerns, that they're they're intimately interrelated. Um, uh, I mean, I think that, that that's 
something which remains very important. Uh, but I also think, I mean, I also think what, what a, one of the uh, important uh, lessons is uh, that different states pursue different uh, developmental strategies, or uh, that is to say, in terms of their their own economy, and 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 they tend to. I mean, part of what what I was suggesting is is that the French saw the British infrastructural straight infrastructural state strategy as particularly dangerous because they read it through their own lens of geopolitics, a geopolitical strategy, less focused on infrastructural state, right? I mean, the French didn't spend money on infrastructure, right? I mean, in their colonies, right? I mean, one of the remarkable things uh, about, uh, about French America, for example, is that it was uh, governed by the Navy. The Navy governed French America, which meant that the only thing that they spent money on were presents to Indians. Um, uh, they didn't do, there was no money being spent on development. So uh, they could only understand British expenditures on development as, as a prelude to an aggressive military action. So I think one of the other lessons for today is to try to understand uh, activities of states on their own terms rather than through the prisms of our, our own understandings of what our own policy objectives are. Um, but um, I mean, I, I also think it's important from a sort of, I mean, I think one of the lessons of patriot political economy and their, their arguments is that um, war is not necessary, uh, a necessary outcome of competition between leading economic powers, that in fact, it's entirely possible uh, for both to uh, achieve progress without war, as long as they follow various economic rules, uh, which both sides see as fair. Um, and that, so I mean, I, so I mean, obviously, I mean, to my mind, uh, that does give us a certain lesson for thinking about American Chinese relations today, uh, that it's extremely important to bring both sides to the bargaining table, um, uh, not necessarily to, to have to achieve breakthroughs in uh, on both sides, but to achieve uh, some kind of perceptions on both sides that that there's fairness that there that neither side is pursuing Machiavellian policy and gaining uh, gaining unfair advantage through you know whatever through currency manipulation through protectionist policies or whatever. Um, so I think I mean my, my sense is uh, I mean my, my sense is that um, uh, uh, the war between the British and French uh, uh, over uh, global economic condition, uh, uh, competition was not inevitable. Uh, it only became it became inevitable because of misperceptions of what the other side was doing um, and because. Uh, there was there was no real possibility uh, of of an economic uh, breakthrough in terms of the negotiations which went uh, which took place at Paris because both sides uh, instead of employing people who were interested in uh, coming to a middle ground both sides uh, uh, both sides employed people uh, uh, as the chief negotiators who were already hawkish. Yeah, I just follow up um, quickly on that. It's hard to discern with the clarity that you had. Who the great thinkers and movements are today mm -hmm. compared to what you saw you know here's the three schools and here are the leaders and that was very lucid and i appreciate it and yet when you're living in today you know i have a harder time looking out and think well here's this great scholar and it's translated in 18 languages and you know who are these people i, I do discern a rise of the china hawks Mm -hmm. gets to your argument about misperception. On the other hand, China has state-owned enterprises, a nine-dash line, which is the most ridiculous thing in the world. That would give, you know, the Roman Empire should come back and go to Hadrian's Wall based on 200-year BC claims. You know, it's 
So I think there's legitimate gripes here, but there's also I, the rise of the hawks. Yeah. Look, I don't have, I don't have, you know, I don't know about whether there's a legitimate or illegitimate gripes. I'm perfectly willing to, to believe uh, what you say. I think, I think what the lesson of the 1750s suggests, and I think that there's a lot of sort of continuity here, um, is that there's always an advantage to understand, I mean, to understand better what the other side is thinking. Um, uh, and I, and I think that that's not, I mean, I agree with you. It's harder to do in real time when you're, you know, negotiating, but I I think we also have many more uh, intellectual resources available to figure out what the other side was doing. I mean, the way, I mean, how did the British and French, I mean, how did they actually try to figure out what other side, what the other side was thinking, what they were reading? I mean, it's, it's remarkable going through the consular, the consular records in France and the consular records in England. They actually go around to various ministers' houses and try to figure out which books are being delivered. Um, uh, you know, I mean, and copy, copy this down, try to figure out what their reading lists are. Um, and they, they, they actually, at one point, the British ambassador, uh, this is at slightly later, uh, but uh, in, 17, in 1764, when David Hume is the, uh, is the undersecretary of the British embassy, he actually tries to figure out what the, what the French ministry is reading by the price of books. Uh, if, if books go up, uh, he thinks that it's because the ministry is buying certain books as being extremely important. I mean, we have better tools, at, uh, we have better tools available, I think, to figure out what the Chinese are thinking or thinking about, uh, anybody else is thinking, but I think we should we really should be trying to do those sorts of things yeah thank you very much all right next up is uh mike dash michael uh great uh thanks joe uh professor pincus um enjoyed your paper although as joe uh pointed out we've never had a paper uh quite of this uh length for <laughs> one of our sessions uh but i i did want to uh attest that I read the whole thing. Actually, I wish you'd have written more or maybe written less uh, of what you put in the paper and, and more of the gestalt around it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm a political scientist. I'm, you know, fancy myself as being a historically oriented political science uh, scientist, but I'm not uh, au courant, I think, with um, at least some of the debates that you're hanging um, your argument around. And so I'd, I'd like a little bit more uh, background on that. Um, you, you said in your note that we need to take empire seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sort of wondering why we don't take empire seriously. Are you saying that too much of the focus of how we think about global politics is, you know, post-Westphalian nation state and not enough of the uh, empire um, as political unit. Um, you know, if that's the case, I uh, uh, agree with you completely. Um, likewise, I think it would have been helpful to say a little bit more about what's at stake in the global modernity debate. Because I don't think you're just saying got you to uh, Buzan yeah. and his co-author. You're, you're making a, a larger point. Um, and I think it's the, the larger point that I, I'd like to think a, a little bit more uh, conceptually uh, about. Uh, was the war caused by globalization, by the fact 
that Britain and France uh, both had uh, global interests. And, you know, it, it's sort of like, uh, you know, two elephants. They're going to butt, butt heads uh, eventually. Uh, or is it about uh, the war being the result uh, of two different and contradictory views uh, of empire or global modernity? Um, and, and I wasn't clear about that. I wasn't clear about it, I think, in part because you talk mostly ab about the British debate. Right. Um, and, and I followed, you know, how we ended up uh, with the uh, uh, patriots. Um, but I didn't get the causal argument uh, about um, global modernity and the inevitability of this, uh, you know, of the Seven Years' War. So if you could say... A little bit more about those things. I think I'd understand a little bit better how I should situate the very interesting uh, intellectual political debates that you recounted um, in your uh, paper. Right. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the problem. Of, this is this is very much work in progress. It will. I mean, this section will be very much compressed, and there will, there's a second piece uh, to this, which is about actually the, the politics of the outbreak of the war, uh, which also does spend more time talking about the French side and this based on, uh, it was difficult. I mean, I sort of reached out, to be honest, I initially reached a sort of um, impasse on trying to reach the French side until I found serendipitously uh, uh, a whole bunch of French memory. I mean, so, so I had what I cited there from the, the French foreign ministry archives. Uh, and then I found some stuff when I was doing some work in, in, in some archives in Poitiers. But then uh, serendipitously, uh, 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 about 12 months ago, I found a whole bunch of uh, the French contemporary memoranda, which uh, conveniently uh, had been copied out by a spy for, uh, and are now deposited in uh, the library of the University of Michigan. So I can very confidently talk about the French political side of this. Um, uh, so but let me let me sort of, uh, so I, you know, completely agree. Look, I mean, my, my wife's a political scientist. I, you know, believe Some me. Some of your best right? friends are, huh? Yeah, well, you know, well, I don't, I don't know. Uh, uh, you'd have to ask my wife whether we're uh, about that. But um, uh, yeah, um, look, I completely. So, so I mean, yes, I mean, my my argument is my argument about empires is that right that we're too focused on nation states as much as we try to, as much as we you know acknowledge that empires in existence. Even Buzan and Lawson do this right. I mean, empire for them is just a means of extraction, uh, right? Um, they don't think about what an imperial politics would be in terms of what an empire, how an empire looks differently from a nation state. And there's a robust literature on that. Um, I'm not going to summarize it all now. There's also you know, it's obviously there's huge amounts of debate, but I would say the big thing that the literature talks about is that um, is that empires, unlike nation states, are based on difference. Now uh, that they don't uh, believe in, they don't emphasize cultural homogeneity. Um, uh, they emphasize difference. Now, different empires, uh, you know, have ha figure out the different peoples and how they relate to one another differently, but it's based on difference. Um, uh, and uh, what strikes me is that the literature on both the French and the British in this period focuses on them as nation states and doesn't take the imperial interests, cultures, etc., uh, uh, seriously enough. So that's what I want to do, that and, and sort of get out of that uh, that model. Um, um, yes, I mean, what I see is at stake in the argument with Buzan and Lawson. Um, 
is that I think that there, there's a long modern period which really is set off uh, uh, by, uh, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. I mean, the, the contact between East and West um, uh, that really took place around 1500. I don't see a sharp break. I think that there was there was inevitable set of developments. I think that inevitably led to uh, a growth of global commercial interchange. I agree with them that it's not terribly thick at the beginning, but it gets thicker and thicker and it inevitably becomes so because of the value of the commodities. And I think that inevitably leads to an acceleration of state formation in a variety of ways. And I think this is is just as true of China as it was true of, I mean, I think, you know, the recent work on the Qing state has suggested that this is a period of state development in China, just as much as it's a period of state development in Europe that we all know from Tilly, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So I see this as sort of a, as a long period, which we're still in. Uh, 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 the logics of, 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 of global modernity. Now, yes, I mean, I think that what, what I'm suggesting is that the conflict ultimately happened because uh, the French uh, imperial state tended to understand globalization in one particular way, focusing on colonial production and extraction, whereas the British state and ended up focusing uh, uh, very much more on colonial consumption uh, and seeking out markets. And that, 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 uh, and that led both to mutual misunderstanding because they thought each, the other one was pursuing their own imperial project. But I also think it led to a conflict which would not necessarily have happened uh, if there wasn't this kind of uh, political economic disagreement. So it wasn't inevitable that empires would come into conflict. After all, the Portuguese empire and the British empire never come into conflict, right? I mean, if anything, there's... Uh, um, uh, so I don't think it's inevitable that just by having a global empire uh, that you have conflict. And I think, you know, for most of the 18th century, it seemed entirely possible that the Qing uh, and the British would get along perfectly well. Uh, there was, uh, you know, what ended up happening in the 19th century was the result of contingent development. So I don't think it's inevitable that just because you have empires which have which have global reach that you're going to have conflict. I think it's because of competing, at least in the 18th century, I can confidently uh, say because of competing political economic strategies, uh, which made it which made uh, that possible. But I also want to say that it's not like the French and the British lived in different intellectual worlds. Um, there are real parallels between the arguments developed in both cases. And I want to suggest that the outcome, the reason why um, the British went for this more patriot strategy, had everything to do with the fact that politics in the British Empire was public. Um, and led to public debates in which uh, the commercial classes had a much larger influence on political outcomes than in France, where there was a very similar debate um, uh, ultimately, uh, but that the war party, the people focusing on colonial extraction won, despite the fact that those policies were extremely unpopular among French merchants at the time, um, uh, because those French merchants had no access. There was no pop public uh, uh, political debate in France. They had no access, not, not the same kind of direct access to co the court uh, and to making policy. And why didn't they have direct access? Well, they didn't have direct access in a large part because the French treasury didn't depend on merchants in the same way that the British treasury did. Great, uh, thank you very much, very helpful. All right, next up is uh, Eugene Goltz, huge. Alec has a two finger. 
Sorry, I missed him. Let's get over to Alec. Thanks, Eugene. So my point, uh, one, first off, thank you for presenting. Um, but I'd like to circle back to sort of this point that you make about sort of the difference between the perceptions having to do with the publicity of, uh, of the nature of, of politics making. And I'm curious if an alternative explanation wouldn't be the geopolitical nature of those two states. I mean, you say at the beginning, and this is the position of the old guard, that the British are protected, you know, by a moat, more or less. They don't have to worry about a, you know, continental balance of power in the same way that France does. And so could be, could it be that the, the perception, not only the perception, but the way in which sort of the final political outcome arises is because of this just different geopolitical understanding, this diff different geopolitical status that they each have. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's, look, I mean, that's an argument which is made often in the literature. Um, I'll tell you two reasons why I don't believe that. First of all, um, Britain did have a continental presence, right, in, uh, in the 18th century, right? Hanover, uh, uh, which is now part of Germany, was part of the British crown at this point. So, uh, so they were directly present on the continent in a way uh, that I think is extremely important. So it was very difficult. I mean, it was very difficult to just sort of um, uh, move away. So, so any war that would take place on the continent, Hanover would be attacked. Um, but I think it's also uh, I think it's also important. Uh, a second reason is that the moat didn't seem so impenetrable in the in the middle of the 18th century. In 1745, uh, there was a massive rebellion uh, uh, by Bonnie Prince Charlie, supported by the French, which almost overthrew the British government. Uh, right. So so the the notion that the moat was protecting the British. Um, uh, you know, the channel was protecting the British. That seemed like a very narrow stream in the 1750s. Uh, it didn't seem so dangerous and sort of technology had, I mean, uh, the, the chance that the possibility of a French invasion seemed <coughs> very real. Um, and there was always concerned as, I mean, I noticed Patrick Griffin is here. I mean, as uh, Patrick knows better than most of us, right? I mean, there was always a concern that the French would uh, would also attack Britain through Ireland, right? I mean, it, uh, with, with Irish support, something of course, which they came awfully close to doing in the 1790s. Um, uh, so, I don't think that the G, I mean, I, th I think that that most British politicians saw themselves very much as part of Europe, um, you know, and the position that the Duke of Bedford took about turning its back on Europe. I mean, it was it was a position it was available. People did think that way, but it was a pretty radical position uh, to be taking uh, in the middle of the 18th century. And one of the first responses, I mean, the people, I mean, the old guard, when they, you know, read Bedford's position, I mean, they said, you know, this is completely ridiculous. If we turn our back on Europe, um, uh, right, I mean, the, the French are just <laughs> are just going to invade there. Well, they're consolidate their position. Um, in the Netherlands and take over uh, what was then uh, the Austrian Netherlands, take over the Dutch Republic and just invade us, we would be uh, much more vulnerable. Um, <laughs> so the argument was is that it was simply impossible, uh, impossible uh, to do that. So I don't think um, I don't think the different geopolitical uh, positions 
determined uh, what the outcome was. And I, I think another reason to think that it didn't determine what the outcome was is that, you know, at the very moment uh, that we see these policies being taken, uh, French political economists that we all, you know, know well, right, the physiocrats, right, I mean, the most important uh, French political economic group in the 18th century, we're arguing for exactly the opposite. We're arguing for much more of this kind of uh, developmental strategy. So it's not, it's not, um, uh, uh, it's not the geopolitical position which determines what, what is thought. I think it very much had to do with the nature of the kind of political culture which existed in the two places. Um, and I think it's extremely important that when the French lose the Seven Years' War, um, that they turn to patriot ideas, um, uh, right? I mean, the, the Fred, uh, the, that suddenly uh, British patriot ideas become uh, extremely influential uh, in, in France. Now, admittedly, they're given a slightly different twist by the physiocrats like Canet, um, but they really turn to these ideas. So I don't think the geopolitics determines the position so much as the uh, as the political culture uh what was uh uh the political culture and the and the lack of influence uh that merchants have um it was only in the face of a disastrous defeat uh by 1763 uh that that the french ministry began to listen to these uh, to these uh physiocrats who really represented a kind of much more commercial point of view okay huge now you can't hide uh, okay, um, happy happy to uh, interact. Um, thanks for the uh, paper. I mean, very interesting. <coughs> that um, I know only little shreds about, so I you know I've learned a lot. Um, I, I'm curious. I think about two things, and they're just you know I'm a, a political science international security guys so you know i'm i'm ill informed maybe but um so my understanding of what you've said and what i read of the paper i admit i didn't make it to the end and i apologize i just i just didn't leave enough time um uh, i meant to but um it seems to me this was a war in your view caused by ideas right, non-material factors, and particularly bad ideas, right? So ideas that we, about economics that we now recognize to have been false, right? So in a sense, I didn't know much about this, but when I read what you were talking about, the, the British saying, um, the patriots saying they want a consumption-oriented view of colonies, this is like Rosa Luxemburg talking about imperialism in the tw early 20th century, that they're meant to be a dumping ground for surplus production. But of course, if colonies don't produce anything, there's no value to dumping your surplus production there, right? They have to give you something back. Otherwise it's not trade, it's donation. Yeah. And um, so this is just a bad economic idea. And well, okay, people have had bad ideas and sometimes it causes bad policy outcomes. But what do we really learn from saying these British guys had a bad idea and the French had a different bad idea, but one that's more understandable, the idea that if these colonies produce a surplus, you can extract it and you can make money off it. That's less bad economic idea. It just turns out to be an expensive way to make money instead of a cheap way to make money when you try to do it by extraction. So, um, so the one thing is, 
was this really just about bad economic ideas? And in particular, they're especially bad because your description of Nova Scotia, right, over all the years involved, they sent 6,000 people there, mm. which is a tiny number. And they built this tiny little village, Halifax, which didn't produce anything of value, right? Some timber, but gee, there were a lot of sources of timber in the 18th century. So, I mean, how could it possibly have been worth it to fight a global war over these stakes? So that's the first question. Like the economic cause of war doesn't make sense to me. Maybe it's just a mistake. The second question is, I can't imagine that people would go to war without ever considering, are we going to win? And what's the military balance? So like you could say, we have an incentive to fight because of this commercial competition, but somewhere in there, somebody's got to start to think about military operations, the balance of power. How are we going to win? Is this going to turn out well? Is it going to be worth it? And it strikes me that... Um, all of these economic considerations, like our general international relations studies of economic things as causes of either war or peace, are they have not been fruitful, right? It is much more fruitful to think about, geez, we fear each other, and when we see an opportunity militarily, we fight. And um, so where's the military analysis? Right. Anyway, two questions. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so really good question. So first, first, let me sort of say, um, I don't think, I mean, the the long, too long fragment that I gave you guys was too focused on ideas. Um, I do think it's really important that these ideas are translated into policy. And that's why a, sort of the infrastructural development uh, in Nova Scotia is really important. And I do want to say, it's true that in the first four years, they only transported 6,000 people, but the population of Nova Scotia goes from 3,000 uh, in 1748 to almost 80,000 in 1755, uh, right? I mean, so it's not just the, Im the immigration immigrants are there. I mean, this goes from nothing to being, you know, uh, uh, you know more populous than, you know, the useless uh, colony of Rhode Island, for example. Um, uh, so, so, um, uh, so you know, it's it, it becomes a fairly important place. It's certainly more populous than Georgia by the end of the 1750s. Um, and it's also true that Halifax, you know, it doesn't export anything. But by uh, by uh, uh, by the time of the Napoleonic Wars, Halifax is the second most important British naval port in the world. Uh, so, I mean, it does become something uh, of real significance. And of course, their view is that the only way that you can sort of maintain transatlantic commerce is by having a major naval port uh, on the North on North American seaboard, which is what Halifax uh, was supposed to become. Um, so um, to get to get at, I mean, are these, you know, uh, look, let me say two things. One is, how do I put this? I think most economic ideas are bad ideas. Uh, I mean, my view is that is that, you know, uh, um, Economists have proven in history more wrong, I mean, economists, political economists, whatever you want to call them, more wrong than they've been right. Um, but that doesn't make their, their ideas less not influential in policymaking terms. I mean, I don't think anybody would deny that Arthur Laffer, you know, 
people don't think the laugher now is necessarily right about, I mean, everything, he was right about some things, but I mean, I don't think the fact that he's wrong makes him, made him any less influential during the Reagan years, right? I mean, I, th I mean, so, so part of it, part of it is that I don't think it's important whether um, it's ultimately that important whether the economic ideas are right. I think what's important is whether they're plausible enough um, that they're taken up uh, uh, by policymakers and that they inform policy. Um, and I think that clearly happened uh, uh, in this case. Um, but the second thing is, is that I don't think the colonial consumption argument is quite as silly as you make it out to be. You're absolutely right. They need to be able to purchase things, right? I mean, these guys need to purchase things, but there's a difference between, um, so they have to produce things. And of course, New Englanders did produce things. They produced lots of wheat, they produced lots of pork, uh, and they exported that to the West Indies. The, the argument is not that, that, that they don't think that the, that the colonies should produce anything. It's whether they should be producing valuable commodities which will be sold on European markets, like sugar, like rice, like tobacco, right? I mean, so so the French strategy is focusing on, on, on uh, producing these things in the first instance for European markets. Why do they become so important? Because they can be taxed, right? They can be taxed in Europe. Whereas um, uh, what ends up being produced in North America, I mean, what in the Northern parts of North America and indeed what Nova Scotia would produce um, is stuff which would be shipped uh, either intra-imperially uh, to the West Indies or illicitly extra-imperially to, to Spanish America. I mean, remember, I mean, Spanish America is desperate for all sorts of things because they've driven, I mean, uh, Spanish America at this point is a silver economy, right? I mean, it's been driven completely by, by silver production. They're driving indigenous Indigenous people into the silver mines to produce more and more silver, um, which they're doing, right? And, and by doing that, they're destroying local textiles, they're destroying uh, lots of local food production, et cetera, et cetera. So there's an insatiable demand in Spanish America for stuff that, you know, perhaps British North America could produce or at least re-export. Um, so I don't think it's such, such a crazy economic strategy. And the idea is, is that if you can generate colonial markets, in a time when Europe is pursuing protectionist policies, right? European markets were being increasingly closed to British manufactured goods in the 1740s, 1750s, that that then can generate um, uh, uh, can generate long-term economic growth. So I don't think it's such a crazy strategy, whether it's, a, you know, whether it would make sense in the 21st century, that I'm not willing to defend. But I think in the 18th century, it's not a crazy strategy. I don't think either of the strategies, I think they're each plausible strategies. I think they're uh, I mean, if you were to tell me, would you defend, if you were to ask me, would you defend any of the, either of these economic positions, the answer will be no. Um, but I don't think in retrospect, I would defend many of the positions that any economist says, uh, whether, you know, whether in the 18th century or in the 21st century. I think that they're always, you know, their best guesses, they do the best they can. Um, and I think they tend to be useful responses to the previous crisis, but then tend to generate new crises, right? Now, the, the, the question of what you say about the military is absolutely right. Right. These guys did think incessantly about warfare. What struck me is really important, though, is that the key uh, military actors on both sides, uh, 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 that is to say, uh, and on the on the British side, the Duke of uh, the Duke of, Duke of Cumberland, who's the the king's uh, younger uh, 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 the, well, uh, uh, the the king's. Uh, 
uh, uh, younger son, uh, a military man. Uh, his archives have now become available. And he, you know, he was very much sort of somebody who thought that the British could defeat the French. But what's clear to me is that he's obsessed with patriot political economy. Going through his archives, one realizes how much he's reading Postlethwaite. I mean, this was, I mean, not only is he reading Postlethwaite, it turns out he's subsidizing uh, the translation of Postlethwaite's book into Dutch, all right? I mean, this is somebody who's really reading this stuff and thinking about this stuff uh, uh, in, a, in, a very, in a very serious way. Um, and, you know, it, it was a sort of calculation that was going on about what was going to happen. The argument, so the argument that the Bedfordites make is that, um, Basically, we don't know whether we can win a war or not, but we sure as hell know if the French, if the French continue developing the way they are, we're never going to be able to defeat them and we'll become, I mean, the language that they used is we'll become a mere province of France, uh, right? Um, so the only possibility is to roll the dice and go to war now. That was a sort of Bedfordite thinking. The Duke of Cumberland's thinking was, no, actually, we can win the war precisely because we spend more money on, the French spend a lot more more money in infrastructure in Europe. We spend a lot more money in infrastructure in the colonies, in the empire, um, and that's and and the and the great struggle is going to be about uh, the great fight is going to be uh, uh, in the empire now. That this is this is a, a sort of shift. It's no longer about who can win a European war. Um, it's about who can win the colonial war. And the Duke of Cumberland's view is that we, that Britain's going to win if the war is fought in the colonies and on the seas. Um, uh, and and you know, uh, and the argument is, I mean, there's a sort of parallel argument which is being made uh, in the Comte de Maurepas circles, I mean, the military circles in France, um, which is basically saying, we can wipe them out on the continent of Europe, um, and we think we can wipe them out in the short term in the colonies, in India, on in the Coromandel Coast, in uh, uh, in North America. But the fact is, because they 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 dominate the sea lanes, because they have a stronger navy, we've got to fight them now before they build up this infrastructure. That's why Nova Scotia was so threatening, is because that was the first was a real attempt to build up uh, a naval inf infrastructure uh, 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 in North America for the first time. Thank you. All right, uh, Ian Johnson. Hi, yes, thanks. Uh, thanks for a very interesting uh, paper and, and presentation here. I'm curious uh, if I can press you a little bit more about uh, the, the case of Nova Scotia in particular. So as I understand it from your talk and the paper, the logic is, is really a political economic one uh, in, in terms of investing heavily there, um, this logic of imperial development. But certainly if I were a French naval officer, I would be, I would be greatly concerned. Nova, Nova Scotia, as I understand it from uh, you know, maybe my mental map here is, is wrong. So you've got the, the massive French fort at Louisbourg, just north of Nova mm -hmm. Scotia, guarding the St. Lawrence and controlling all trade essentially into French Canada. Just south, you have uh, Miquelon and, and Saint-Pierre, the, the key French fishery that produces the best and, and most important uh, sailors for the French fleet. So I'm curious, in the primary sources and in the documents, does this not logic not appear on the British side that this is, in fact, a very uh, threatening position to French interests in, in North America? Yeah, look, the, uh, yes. I mean, this does. Uh, yes. I mean, they're, they're sort of well aware of this. Um, and, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, from the French, the French perspective, right, um, building up, uh, developing uh, Nova Scotia is they see it as a military threat. 
Um, uh, the problem for the British was um, um, uh, um, they also thought, I mean, they didn't think, you know, commerce was, uh, they thought in the 18th century, they thought that you needed a robust Navy to have commerce, right? I mean, that, that uh, you know, uh, you needed to, you needed to pr protect commerce and they needed in many cases to pry open markets. Um, um, and uh, they thought and well knew, in fact, that, um, that uh, uh, without uh, a significant naval port without um, uh, without a presence in Nova Scotia, um, their view was that all of British North America would be uh, would be uh, vulnerable. And if you look at the map in the 1750s, I mean, you're absolutely right about uh, about uh, you know how Nova how scary Nova Scotia looks to the to the French. Uh, but from the British perspective. Uh, there were, the French had succeeded in drawing a line uh, by forts from Louisiana all the way up to Quebec, um, and they'd made indigenous alliances on the back of all of the British colonies. Um, and there was a real sense, and indeed the Six Nations, who you know were perceived to sort of hold the balance of power uh, uh, in in the Northeast, were tipping increasingly towards towards the French alliance. From the British perspective, they thought that this French connecting, you know. Uh, Louisiana all the way up uh, uh, to Canada, where they were about to drive the British into the sea. Um, so there was a real threat, and, the, and their view was that they needed to have a naval presence simply to be able to supply and protect uh, the seaports and the commerce coming out, uh, coming out of North America and the West Indies. So um, it was, uh, you know, uh, yes, I mean, there was a certain logic there, a sort of, uh, you know, geopolitical logic, which, which did bring them into conflict. But I think had the French understood that the British goals in the first instance were economic uh, and uh, were economic rather than geopolitical. I mean, there wasn't the goal was not to sort of expand uh, uh, infinitely into into French territory. Um, the goal was to develop this sort of co commercial strategy. I mean, again, this is where this kind of misunderstanding becomes uh, becomes clear. So, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about these sort of mirror images of fears. I think the French are not unreasonable to think that they're going to be cut off from the sea. Um, but I think it's also important uh, 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 to realize that the British were also terrified of being driven uh, you know, driven into the sea in, in a certain sense, and they, they needed protection for commerce. So I think there was a kind of uh, misunderstanding, part, I mean, a, a sort of mirror image of fears, but also a misunderstanding of what the of what the political economics, I mean, the, of the different imperial strategies were. So I think, again, going back to an earlier question, I think the war took place because the French and the British had different imperial strategies, global imperial strategies. And misunderstood, you know, and I think there was a certain amount of misunderstanding in some case as well. All right, I'm going to do the chair's prerogative and uh, ask a few questions of my own. Actually, oh. three. No, uh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's that's good. All right, so three things. One is about stability. Second mm -hmm. is about coalitions, and the third is about inevitability. Okay. Um, starting with stability, you mentioned it at the beginning of your talk. It sort of occasionally peeked said from behind the curtain, um, but I don't really know what you mean by stability. Uh, in political science, we sometimes talk about stability as war proneness, and we sometimes talk about it as ranking. Um, I was hoping that you could clarify what you meant by it, but also if you could address the ranking question, right? Because in 1700, uh, Britain's way behind French GDP, but by 1800, they're up at a par with each other. 
Mm-hmm. And you can tell a story that this this period was actually uh, the period that could have changed the, the great power ranks one way or the other. That France could have stayed on top in a way, or Britain could have uh, not leapt ahead so quickly. Uh, so that's the first question. Second question, uh, you had some interesting thoughts on why the Patriot Coalition won without Tom Brady. I thought that was really cool. But I wanted to you to talk about coalitions mirroring um, that, uh, you know, you talk about the physiocrats make they come on strong later. But, you know, when you read Adam Smith, it's really the physiocrats are very important to him. And, they, you know, they were influencing him, not the British going the other direction. Yeah. So two thirds of the coalitions mirrored in France and then suddenly three thirds. Yeah. So do you have a theory of when? domestic coalitions tend to marry each other? Because it's not like, you know, Mexico has the Democrats and Republicans and there's sort of a British American mirroring, but it's the mirroring's very approximate. Third third question uh, is on inevitability. You, in answering Mike Desch's question, you talked about, you know, since 1500, this, this had never led to that, which had never led to that, which had never yeah. led to here. And you set a world record for the number of times I've heard a historian use the word inevitably which I was told on pain of branding or bastinadoing never to do. So right. if you could please justify that word choice, because I love it. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, the first thing about um, stability, and many, many, in, in some ways, I suppose it gets back to the sort of path dependent, you know, the, the question about inevitability. Um, so, um, look, I mean, part of my argument is, I mean, my sort of notion about periodization is that um, uh, what the global interaction sent began uh, in 1500 was a period of incredible instability in which it was very difficult to reach, you know, the kind of equilibrium, uh, stable equilibria, which, you know, economists like to talk about, right? Um, because there were all these kind of new openings, new products, new uh, uh, new markets, et cetera, that kept on changing uh, changing these patterns. And then, uh, and then, you know, but it's not just economic, right? I mean, it's, it's that these new, these then list, lead to different forms of state development that can harness these things in different ways. Um, and so uh, to get, so, I mean, I think what ends up happening is, is that you have from the period 1500 onwards, and I think we're still in that period, we have huge amounts of instability built into the system because of, of all, all of the uncertain factors associating with uh, with globalization. I mean, however you want to understand it, whether you want to focus on global state formation, global economic interactions, it's et, et cetera, et cetera. So in the case of what was going on uh, in Britain and France in the 18th century, I mean, wh- what clearly happened in the period, um, uh, 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 you know, late 17th century, England uh, grows at a much quicker rate than France, right? I mean, much, much quicker rate. I mean, uh, uh, and France is in a, was a period called a sort of uh, long recession. Um, but the period between 1700 and 1750, France grows much more quickly than Britain does. Um, why is that? Um, uh, I mean, I think the short answer, I mean, we don't really know because, uh, you know, uh, 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 there's, well, I mean, the economic data, the French financial data is messy. Let's just leave it at that, messy for the period. Uh, uh, we know a lot more about what's going on in the British case because the data is much better. Um, but but what, what we end up, what the best guess we have is that the French state expends huge amounts of money, um, uh, uh, huge amounts of money 
uh, on, on infrastructure uh, and uh, development when the British state during the, uh, during the Walpole years was obsessed with balancing the budget. They were pursuing uh, austerity measures and that really led uh, to development. Now, but this is all on the domestic level, right? Then with the fall of Robert Walpole, the prime minister in 1742, the British state starts investing in colonial development in a huge way. Um, uh, and I think that that, that, that plays a, 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 huge, a huge role. And I think the state plays a significant role uh, in, uh, uh, in allowing the British ultimately uh, to overtake and to become uh, the first industrial nation. Um, and this, you know, moving back and forth creates a huge amount of instability, uh, uh, geopolitical instability, economic instability, et cetera. Um, the issue of coalitions, I mean, right, I mean, um, I mean, part of what what I mean, I, I think it's um, I think one has to separate two things that frequently historians, historical sociologists and political scientists lump together. Um, that is to say, ideas and parties. Um, uh, and so what I what I do increasingly believe um, is that at the level of let's call them political, economic and geopolitical ideas, um, there's kind of a pan European and indeed by the middle of the 18th century, a pan, you know, imperial culture. Um, these guys are, you know, learned people, elites are reading the same stuff. Um, there's no difference between ideas that the French have and the British have or the Spanish have. Um, uh, you know, the notion that there's a British path and a French path or whatever is just crazy. I mean, I, I just think that there is a there is a a, um, a, a broadly shared set of, of ideas. And uh, you know, I mean, I think if you sort of focused on elites in the, you know, in the 20th or 21st century, my guess is, you know, you might have different balances in different places, but, but the general idea is, but what's, what is different and distinctive is, is the nature of partisanship or what, you know, what you call coalitions. And I think it's really important um, that in Britain, these are parties. These are parties which are organized in every meaningful sense. Um, uh, that is to say, uh, they have party uh, platforms, they have party organizations, they have party newspapers, and we've been misguided in not seeing these things uh, by, you know, lots of work, right? I mean, you know, you know, Hofstetter's whole work, right? You don't get, you don't get real, uh, real parties until the late 18th century, you know, in the opposition, you know, that's just not true. Uh, um, I mean, it's just, just not true. You have real parties uh, in Britain. And what ends up happening is that these parties uh, 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 appropriate uh, various ideas. In France, you have coalitions and factions. Why do I call them coalitions and factions, not parties? Because they don't exist out of doors. They exist within their factions at court, at Versailles. Um, uh, um, and 
there are in some cases beginning in the 1750s, but only in the 1750s, um, do some of these ideas get printed, but they get printed anonymously. Um, and the Journal Economique, uh, which prints some of these ideas, prints promiscuously position, position papers from different factions. So it's very difficult to sort of, these people are not allowed to sort of seek out of doors, uh, I mean, they're not uh, out of doors support. Um, um, so, in France, um, I think I think it is true. I mean, I think I think there is kind of um, people with patriot ideas in the late 1740s and 1750s, but they have no presence at court or virtually no presence at court. I mean, uh, the Marquis d'Argenson, um, you know, he goes to court occasionally. He does support various ideas that look like patriot and that would become physiocratic ideas, but he's on the outs, right? His brother, the Comte d'Archanson, becomes the war party guy, but the two of them hate one another. And at one point, the Marquis d'Archanson said, if it wasn't unseemly, I would challenge him to a duel, but he's my brother. Um, uh, so, I mean, there's, there's a certain sense in which, in which um, uh, um, so there are these, uh, there are these groupings. So why do these groupings, what sort of tips the balance of power uh, in France for one group to another at various moments in time, um, well, public opinion doesn't play a significant role. I think what does play a significant role is, you know, humiliating defeats, uh, right? I mean, the humiliating defeats, like the Seven Years' War, allows um, uh, these kind of patriot people a place at the table at Versailles. Um, uh, uh, in a certain sense. And their argument was very simple. You know, the British won the war, the British won the war by pursuing uh, patriot political economic ideas. Maybe we should start pursuing some of those. Um, uh, and that does get them get them a seat at the table. Um, uh, but you get, and, and, you know, in both cases, right, uh, in both um, um, uh, the British uh, and the French cases, the kind of old guard, you know, uh, uh, the Humean position gets squeezed out, the kind of moderate position. And I think it's a, you know, it's a story not too dissimilar, from, you know, from other places we've seen where at various moments of high politicization, the kind of moderates are forced to choose between two more radical alternatives. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, I think that that's what happens in both cases. In, in the British case, um, uh, the struggle uh, is one which, which occurs out of doors, it's public political debate, but why do the kind of Bedfordite, why do the Bedfordite policies win out ultimately in the 1760s and 1770s? Well, the reason ultimately that they win out is because the, of the unrepresentative nature of the British Parliament. The British Parliament massively overrepresents the English landed classes, as opposed to the Scottish, the Welsh, the Irish, or, you know, I mean, the Americans don't have any representation directly. Um, and uh, those guys were most interested in, in pursuing policies, extractive policies, which lowered taxes on the English landed gentlemen. So it was precisely because of, of their, of the unrepresentative nature of the British uh, parliamentary system and because politics was so public that you get this swing towards uh, a Bedfordite position after the war is over, despite the fact that the Patriots won the war. I don't know if that answers all of your questions. So, I mean, so, so, um, I mean, and, and I mean, the, the idea that, that Smith is borrowing from the physiocrats, um, you know, is true to a point, right? Smith learns a lot from the physiocrats, but, uh, um, the physiocrats 
are absolutely focused on agrarian development, uh, whereas Smith, you know, as much as he doesn't want the mercantile classes, the shopkeepers, the nation of shopkeepers to be making economic policy, he's much more interested in manufacturing and the value of human labor, right? I mean, there's, 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 uh, um, uh, uh, I mean, one of the remarkable things about, uh, uh, about Smith is um, if you read Smith and the physiocrats next to Marx, Smith looks a hell of a lot like, more like Marx than the physiocrats do. In part because Marx had Smith on his lap, but well, he did. He did absolutely. I mean, you know that that quote. I mean, one of the things that I didn't say, right? I mean, that quote from from Smith uh, from Marx uh, about how uh, uh, you know. For, I mean, that's actually from Marx and Engels from the Manifesto. But the but there's a point in Capital where where uh, Marx also essentially plagiarizes Smith, right? I mean, it's just literally the language is lifted from the Wealth of Nations about how uh, 1492. I mean, uh, shorthand changed the world. I mean. There's very clear, and if you go to, 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 there's a copy of Wealth of Nations in the British Library with blue pencil notations. Um, I can't prove that this is from Marx, but Marx certainly sat in the uh, British Library with blue pencils noting things in the original. And it, you know, and that that particular passage is, I think he says, very important on it with a star next to it. All right. Well, on that edifying note, we have to wrap up on time. Um, please tune in for May 4th, our final Endisk installation with uh, Jeffrey Taliaferro. But right now, please join me in thanking Steve Pincus for a fascinating and epic um, session. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is really helpful and terrifying for me. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.